and Becky, welcome. Those of you, uh, those of you who are long-term members will remember Patrick and Becky. They were on our staff and were long-term partners with us. Served overseas and now are serving in Florida, working on overseas work. So welcome. You know you guys are here for several weeks. Looking forward to catching up with you. We are. Um, in a section again in Exodus where, frankly, we're hitting unusual material, topics that don't often come up, even in church, but ones that are really important because they link us to the past and they help us understand how our Bibles work together, how the New Testament and Old Testament um, interact, how we can have assurance of what God's doing, And so while they're unusual passages, they require some extra effort on our parts as the hearers, they remain nonetheless significant. Uh, Last Sunday, we recovered the majority of what's known as the Book of the Covenant. That's this lengthy section in the middle of Exodus in which uh, there are rules and regulations Israel was commanded to live by. And unlike the 10 commandments that are timeless, that are repeated, restated in the New Testament. The specifics of the Book of the Covenant were for a particular people, in a particular time, in a particular place, for a particular era, and that era has now passed. But that doesn't mean there's not things for us to learn here that are timeless. Today we'll conclude this section with what's essentially the epilogue, the conclusion of that section that's looking for the people in which it was spoken to originally was looking ahead to their time through the desert and into the promised land. So follow with me if you would, starting in verse 23 of Exodus 23. So Exodus 23, verse 23. This is God speaking. When my angel goes before you, and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars to pieces. Pillars is not referring to their houses, but their altars, their places of worship. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. These are the types of things those who followed other gods expected their gods to provide for them. So God's saying, don't, Don't go after their idols. I'm the one true God and I'll do for you what they think those gods that aren't gods will do for them. I will fulfill the number of your days, verse 27. I will send my terror before you and will overthrow into confusion all the peoples against whom you shall come. I will make your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before you. You shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them from you before you in one year, 
lest the land become desolate and wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possess the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. And I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Did you feel the mood in the room change as I read this passage? I hope today that we could come to understand it. Church, the, the main point of this section of scripture is that God will protect and preserve his redeemed, obedient people. God will protect and preserve his redeemed, obedient people. That is, God's saying in this passage that he'll protect them on their way to the place that he had for them. And that once they were there, he would preserve them. He would bless them. And that God expects his people to persevere in their obedience. These are the themes in these passage, in these verses. God will protect, God will preserve, and God expects us to persevere in obedience. Geographically speaking, we find God's people in the desert at the base of Mount Sinai. They'll be there for the entire rest of the book of Exodus. But this was not to be their final destination. They weren't to be camping for the rest of their lives. God had a better place for them. And that place is a theme very often in the Old Testament. Way back in Exodus 3, when God called Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt, he gave Moses a promise. He said in chapter 3, verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land, then you'll see the same groups of people, to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So far on in our study, we have observed verse 16 has happened, but verse 17 is still in action. God's done the first part, but he has not yet brought them to the particular land he's designated for them. So this is a a promise that undergirds this book we're spending months in together. But that time that was spoken to Moses wasn't the first time. In fact, when God launched his plan to have a people for himself, a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, uh, a people that churches all over the world are still seeking to help fulfill by sharing the gospel with more and more people groups, 
That is the first time this promise was given. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12. God said to a man named Abram, now the Lord said, go from your country to your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. If you wanna take a, a thread and pull it through the Bible in such a way that you understand this is the, the clothesline, if you will, upon every other story hangs. This would be the promise, Genesis chapter 12. The land referred to by God is the land of Canaan, the land he promised to give to Moses, the land he promised the Israelites they would have. But this land was never intended to be just for them. It always had a missional edge to it. Do you see that at the end of that promise? That in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Beloved, it's always been God's plan that his people would be good gifts to the world. Gifts through whom the gospel would be spoken that more and more people might be included in the family of God. The good gifts God gives us are never intended to be only for us, but to be conduits through which we could be good gifts to others. Think about a child, for example. A child is a good gift from God, a gift to be nurtured towards adulthood and then released out to move those blessings on to other people. An apartment, for another example, is a good gift from God. A place not primarily to be a shelter and hiding from the world, but a place for hospitality and welcoming and blessing. God gives good gifts to his own that through these gifts, by spreading the message of Christ, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So don't miss the miracle of a nation of former slaves becoming the inhabitants, God's telling them back in Exodus 23, you will be the inhabitants of one of the prime places to live in the entire ancient world. But the reason I think the room got uncomfortable as I read those verses is that the land was already occupied. There are already people living there. So how would the Israelites come to live in a land already inhabited by others? They were not trained military scouts. There was no soldier among them. No, these are brick makers and brick layers. How would they get there when other people lived between them and the land? How would they survive? And how would they come to possess a place already held by others? Well, the text is clear that it wouldn't be by their might. They couldn't accomplish that. God could. But with our sensibilities today, that's bothersome to us. So I wanna to get to that, but first, 
I want us to really focus in on what the passage itself says. 18 times in just those few verses we read in Exodus 23, God uses personal pronouns to describe himself and what he would do. I learned when my mama said something to me over and over that it mattered. God saying something to us over and over and over in these verses. He says, I and my, 18 times. These promises powerfully emphasize it was God who would protect them. It was God who would preserve them. And therefore it was God to whom they would be required to persevere in obedience because God had a place for them. A great theme in the Bible that it just doesn't make much sense to us today is place, place. Humanity began in a perfect garden, in a perfect place that God had made. And if we read all the way through the scriptures, and we're in the last book in the Bible, Revelation, then we learn of another place. We're looking forward to a perfect city, the heavenly Jerusalem, which will come down. God will renew his creation, and we will reside there together. In the Old Testament, this longing for place is often tied to the promised land, the land promised first to Abram. In fact, a scholarly book I read this week said, next to God himself, the longing for land seems to dominate all others in the Old Testament. Isn't that weird? Doesn't that strike us as odd? The promised land represented settledness for people who had wandered for centuries. It was a location to steward gifts that God would give. It was a site for security and safety. And in an era of history where there were no fries or sprouts, when you didn't buy prepackaged food filled with preservatives at the grocery store, no, you lived off the land. And so a land flowing with milk and honey represents a place where one's essential needs would be provided. But not only provided, you would have abundance and you'd have it with a touch of sweetness. That's what the milk and honey represents. Honey was a delicacy before everything had processed sugar in it. Now this isn't a sermon on diet, so calm down. <laughs> More than anything else, the Israelites longed for that land because it would be a place of physical and spiritual abundance. It'd be a place best encapsulated by the word rest. The rest of being with God, in God's place, under God's blessings, living for his word. All of that is what's promised to us in Exodus 23. Now, when we turn the pages to the New Testament, that promise of land expands. No longer are God's people promised a roughly 300,000 square foot of property in the Middle East. 
Instead, Jesus said things like, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So what was this picture of just this small section of land becomes the whole earth itself. Ultimately, by that, Jesus means that God will renew the heavens and earth. He'll make everything new. That there will be a place of unceasing rest and eternal peace. A place where every good longing you ever have is fulfilled. A place where there is no evening news because there's never any tragedy. A place where no longer do we sin in grievous ways against one another. Where we never grieve the Spirit either who saved us and sealed us. A place with no miscarriages, no cancer, no medications, where death itself is only a distant memory. A place where no one ever feels alone or broken or soaked in shame. A place where all God's people will see our Savior face to face. Doesn't that sound great? That's what we're promised in the gospel, brothers and sisters. That's why we're here today. God will shelter us spiritually while we're on the way from here to there. That would be a New Testament application of this Old Testament text. God will preserve and protect his redeemed, obedient people. If I said that in New Testament language, God will protect his redeemed people on the way to the heavenly place that Jesus is even now preparing for us. He told us, after all, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, I'm not sure the percentage of people in the room, but I'm confident there's at least some of you. That as you look at that sentence, this is my attempt to summarize the end of Exodus 23. I don't know how many, but I'm confident that some of you don't like that sentence. I'm confident that it's uncomfortable to some of you because of the last two words. God will protect and preserve his redeemed. Yeah! God will protect and preserve his redeemed obedient people? Well, I'm not so sure about that. Am I intending to convey that Israel remaining in the land, remaining in the covenant blessings, was in some way conditional? Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because that's what the passage says. Sustained disobedience among the people of God has always had dire consequences. For the Israelites, that consequence was their removal from the land that God had for them. I want us to see that in this passage and understand its implications for us today. But before we do that, I want to talk about the other thorny issue that's raised by these verses. 
We've talked about the rich imagery and blessings of the promised land in the Old Testament. That when God commanded Moses to tell Israel they'd have a place, that he also is telling them in the same promise that place already has inhabitants. They're all there listed in verse 23. Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, termites. <laughs> Your Bible might have over this section a heading. It might say something like the conquest of Canaan promised. That's what's in mine. That's a quandary for us. It's a quandary for us, I might put this way. All these promises of land for the Israelites are great, God. But what about the people already there? Or if I put it more antagonistically, what kind of God orders the slaughter of innocent people to give them the land that the slaughterers might have everything they had? Is God genocidal? That's the question raised in the room as I just read the passage. That's why we got uncomfortable. Last week we talked about the opposition that some non-Christians have towards believers. Today that usually begins with issues around um, what's known as inclusivity, LGBTQIA, P, Q, R, L-M-N-O-P, begins there. And then if we get past that, then we move into uh, another objection we talked about last week. But I think the third issue that would come up is the very issue that's in our passage today. So if we go sexual identity, slavery, the very next point of opposition you're likely to encounter with a non-Christian is that of the command for genocide of the Canaanites. Therefore, this is an important issue for us to grapple with. First, as we think about this together, I want us to humbly consider the important distinction of creator created. Creator, created. God's the creator, human beings are the created. What that means is God defines truth, morality, goodness. We don't. God speaks, we listen. God's the authority, we're the followers. And so we need to be careful not to come at this question with a posture of moral superiority or arrogance, as though we, some 225, 240, 250 people, at this moment in time have the vantage point from which we can understand and judge all of history, including God. Second, we need to examine if the accusation that this text calls for Canaanite genocide is actually what God commanded. Consider the meaning of the term, for example. Genocide comes from a Greek word, genos, 
which means race. So the word genocide technically means the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular ethnic group for the purpose of wiping out or annihilating that ethnic group. So think, of course, of the Holocaust in which Hitler's Germany sought the extermination of an entire ethnic group, the Jews. At first reading of Exodus 23, that may lead you to think that that's what God was commanding of the Israelites. If I asked for volunteers, my guess is the majority of us in the room would raise our hands and say, yes, that's what that text is calling for. But I would submit to you that's not because that's what it says, but because we hear it on top of things like Hitler's Germany. The conquest of Canaan was not the Crusades, it wasn't Nazis, nor is it Islamic Jihad. If you read this paragraph carefully, you'll see that the goal was not extermination from the earth, but expulsion from the land. Did Canaanites die in the conquest? Now we won't see this in Exodus because it's into the next book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Joshua is where you see this promise being laid out and fulfilled. Did Canaanites die in that conquest? Yes. But genocide was not the command, nor is it the historical record. Those who did die did not die as some sort of ethnic cleansing because the Jews were morally superior people. That's not what happened. How do we know that? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 9 puts it this way. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into possess this land. Whereas it was because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of those nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord spoke to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. You are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. We'll see that later this summer, what he's talking about. From the day that you came out of the land until the day you came to this place, you've been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, that's another name for Mount Sinai, you provoked the Lord to wrath. The Lord was so angry with you, he was ready to destroy you. God expelled the Canaanites from the land that was pictured as a unique place of blessing on earth because they were particularly deep in egregious sin. Passages like Deuteronomy 12 tell us that as part of their worship of false gods, they 
took advantage of women, and they offered children as sacrifices. That is a wickedness of which we cannot hardly even fathom it. Some died, yes, but it's nowhere near correct to say that Exodus 23 is calling for genocide. It's not. It was to be primarily a scattering of idolaters out of this land that was a unique picture of blessing on earth. While certainly unusual and not something God commands today and not something that God commands in most of the scriptures, it was not divine racism, ethnic cleansing, or genocide at all. Are you still unconvinced? I'm confident some are. So another angle through which to think about this is many Old Testament passages warned Israel that if you go into the land and you don't follow my covenant, then I will remove you from the land. If this was about some sort of superiority among the Jews, then why would God ever remove them? You understand what I'm saying? One particularly graphic passage in Leviticus warned the Jews that if you go into the land and you are unrepentant, then you would be, quote, vomited, unquote, out of the land, just like the Canaanites were. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, this might strike you as really, maybe like I'm stretching the words to mean something they don't, but just read the rest of the Old Testament. This is exactly what happened. The Israelites moved into the land that God had for them. They disobeyed. They got removed. Some came back. They disobeyed. They got removed again. God kept his promise. And so the accusation that God commanded the genocidal extermination of every single person in Canaan simply is not true. Does he sometimes describe it in shocking terms that individualized make it sound as though they were supposed to kill everyone? Yes, there's one of them in this passage. It said blot them out but read the rest of the passage. It clearly says, what I mean by blot them out is drive them out of the land. If you take all the times in the Old Testament that kind of language is used, for every one time extermination kind of language is used, three times drive them out of the land kind of language is used. So clearly the majority of cases are not saying blot them out, but saying scatter them outside of the land. Did God in a very unique, 
moment in salvation history drive out idol worshipers from a particular geographical place? Yes. But it included those who were never God's people, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, but it also included the ones that were his people. So if we're uncomfortable with this, we've got to understand that we're uncomfortable with something that makes up a huge part of our Bibles and something that was always a picture designed to be pointing ahead to God's plan that his church would be a pure, faithful, redeemed, believing people. And that those among us who claim Christ but walk in sustained unrepentance are to be removed from the church. So the removal included Canaanites and Israelites, and today it's supposed to include even those who confess Christ but by their lifestyle don't show any evidence of actually knowing him. There are no grounds whatsoever for any claim that God commands the ongoing removal of a particular group from any particular place, geographically speaking. That simply does not exist. Uh, One time years ago, I had a group of people sitting around my dinner table. We were going through a study together who were all members of the church, and one of them said he was convinced that if God told him to kill somebody, he would. And um, he wasn't speaking like if I'm in the military or if I'm a police officer. He just means I'm walking down the street and God says that other person walking down the street needs to die, then I'm gonna do it. The whole room revolted at him, but most in the room struggled to know how to respond to that because they think that's what the Old Testament was saying about an entire group of people, but that's not ever what it actually said. It's not what Exodus 23 says. Yes, we gotta deal with the fact it said, chase them out of their homes and then live in them. It does say that. But that removal was because they had become so incredibly hard-hearted in egregious sin and God used another people to judge them. And if that makes you uncomfortable, read the book of Habakkuk, because that's exactly what God did with another people to chase the Israelites out of the land. God defines morality, and then he holds all people in the end responsible for obeying him equally. Now, before I conclude this sermon in just a minute, go back with me to our big idea so we can deal with the other awkward, uncomfortable issue. God will protect and preserve his redeemed, obedient people. Brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to communicate in that sentence is what Exodus 23 seems to me to say that God expects his people to persevere in their obedience. 
that obedience wouldn't be a one-time thing. It wouldn't be, we'll obey you, God, now because we're living in these tents in the wilderness, but we'll also obey you when we're in the land and we've got nice cars and big TVs and more food than we could ever eat. God will obey you then too. Church, for a particular era in time, the Israelites reaching the land and remaining in the land was conditional based on their obedience. What I mean by that is their enjoyment of the blessings of the covenant was in fact tied to their obedience and their repentance and their obedience and their repentance and their obedience and their repentance. That was the pattern God expected, not perfection and then one mistake and you're out, but rather when you see you failed, then you repent and start again. Don't misunderstand though, this is not works-based salvation. Remember what had already happened in the lives of the Israelites. What had taken place? Not rhetorical. They had already been redeemed. They had already been rescued. They had already been saved. The greatest picture in the Old Testament of salvation is the rescue out of slavery in Egypt. And that had already happened. They had already been redeemed. But would they remain in the active blessings of God? Maybe, maybe not. Depended on what they did. Obedience and repentance were required. Now, we're not Old Testament followers. We're New Testament followers. And so how does this apply to us? Normally in the New Testament era, especially in churches like ours, we emphasize the unconditional offer of grace in the gospel. Amen? We sung of it this morning. That's right. For the gospel is not a declaration of what we're to do. Rather, it's the news of what Jesus already did. Salvation from beginning to end is a free gift of grace and grace alone. It's not something that can be earned based on behavior. It's not something that can be kept based on behavior. So Christian, I'm gonna push you in a minute, but understand that pushing is not about heaven and hell. It's about remaining in the active blessings of God as opposed to being under the discipline of God. Do you hear the difference? Christians are right to demand a gospel unpolluted of works. Yet Jesus was quite happy to call people to consider the demands of discipleship. Ba 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 ba, back at you. <laughs> Jesus was quite happy to call people to give up father and mother to walk away from all their wealth before they responded to the gospel. 
To put that a different way, there is no accepting Jesus as Savior without accepting Jesus as Lord. It's a packaged deal. And so, let me speak first to the Christian. Christian, God expects your ongoing obedience. He expects you to live under his word, not over it. He decides what's right and true. And if every single other person you know seeks to bend what this book says to fit the cultural milieu of our day, God expects you to stand alone. Now the great gift we have is we're not alone. We have each other. And yet the other churches within walking distance of us that have facilities, at least that I'm aware of, all of them are bending around the particular issues of our day when it comes to morality. God expects us to stand alone if we have to. Christian, God calls you to obey him. And when you don't, because you won't, then he expects you to come to him in repentance, in confession, and then in rejoicing his free gift of forgiveness being extended yet again. This is like normal everyday stuff. Oh, I should not have said that in anger. That was sinful. God, I'm sorry. God, would you forgive me? God promises he cleanses from unrighteousness anytime we do that. And that should be like a normal, at least for me, oh, it's been an hour, I gotta be do one, right? So I'm not talking about perfection in obedience, but obedience and confession, two sides of the same coin. If you are a legitimate follower of God and you walk in an area of disobedience chronically, then over time, that will come with consequences. There will be blessings you don't receive because of it. And the Spirit will give his attention to convicting you rather than empowering you for service, for example. But does that put heaven and hell at stake? That's not at all what I'm saying. Obedience matters. When we come to the bread and the cup in just a minute, before you take it, I'd encourage you to ask the Lord, is there any sin I've not yet confessed? That you might take it and rejoice in the cleansing that's yours in the gospel. Now, friends, the other group I'd love to speak to in closing is those that perhaps some time ago you prayed a prayer, you asked Jesus in your heart, you asked him to help you with some particular problem, and you're expecting all these years later that prayer to be your guarantee of eternity with Jesus. 
And yet if you're honest, your life today looks no different than it did before that prayer. There has been no progress of growth in the Lord. Then friend, you're in a perilous position because you're counting on something to offer salvation that the scripture doesn't ever offer. A magic prayer is not what saves. The only faith that saves is saving faith. A saving faith is a faith that believes God, a faith that trusts Christ alone for salvation. And that kind of faith will show itself in fruit, in works, in particular, in the good work of repenting from sin. Paul calls it in Romans the obedience of faith. Does that sound weird? James describes the alternative as faith that's dead, by which he means faith without fruit of a changing life was never real faith at all. Does that describe you? Would you say I really haven't changed? Would you say I've been counting on a prayer? As Bon Jovi said, oh, oh, living on a prayer. Friends, it's Jesus that saves, not some magic words. So how do you know if you're saved? Can you look back a year, five years, 10 years? And are there things today you're uncomfortable with that you weren't then? Are there habits you had that you can't think of the last time that was a struggle? Are there sins today you're battling, not throwing your hands up and giving up? Do you find yourself more moving toward loving people not like you than less? That's how you know. That's fruit. When you fail, do you tell the Lord you failed? Friend, if that stuff is missing, then consider the mercy of God in having you here today to hear this passage about some people long gone who got kicked out of land. God might be saying to you, you will not get into my heaven unless you actually confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, and then walk that out in a lifestyle of faith. That gospel invitation is open to everyone, indiscriminately. Jesus is here for the taking. I hope you'll take him. Father, another tough text, and yet we thank you that you tell us the truth. 
Would you help us today to be doers of your word, not just hearers? And I pray that you'd give each one a proper estimation of where they are with you. And that when we come to the bread and cup in a moment, that this perhaps would be a richer experience of it together than we are accustomed to. In Jesus' name, amen.